gospel according to the good Dr. Luke. Now, I told you we'd have a Thanksgiving message. I kind of messed that up because I missed it by week. So Thanksgiving is past. Normally I do it the, the weekend before. David reminded me of that. So I said, okay, now what do I do? Because we're going to break for Christmas, right? We're going to do our Christmas messages. Every year we do that so we can really focus on the reason for the season. So I said, well, we could stay in Luke one more, but how do I get a Thanksgiving message? Well, let me tell you what we did. We finished chapter 10. Now we're in chapter 11. We're going to the Lord's Prayer. So the title of today's message, Thanksgiving Prayer. It was easy. I did it. So and what, what does that mean? I'm thankful that the Lord gave us this prayer. So there's my Thanksgiving message to you. Right in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now listen. Listen, you're going to be thinking when you read through this. I'm assuming you read the scriptures, right, each year. We give, we give you the daily walk. We walk through the Bible together through the year. You're probably not super familiar with this passage for the Lord's Prayer. You're thinking more of Matthew, and we do it every time we go to the Lord's table, and we'll do that again today. So when we read it, you'll go, ah, there's miss, something's missing. Nothing's missing. It's just two different narratives. And there's a reason for it. We're not to be praying these rote words. You know, without thinking about what they mean. The Lord gave us a pattern. This is just simply a pattern. And it's not my pattern. Scholars have put this together. Bible commentators for centuries. I told you I've never had an original idea. This is a great framework, though, that the Lord gave us in the Lord's Prayer. And one thing about the Lord's Prayer. Know that Jesus never prayed it. What do you mean? He never prayed it. How could he pray the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He had no debt. This is a pattern of prayer for the disciples. Really, it would have been better calling it the disciples' prayer. But Jesus gave us this pattern to pray, and we'll take a look at that this morning. Very briefly, and then we'll go to the table together. Okay? Ready? But in Matthew, there are two points that are probably worth bringing out. When Jesus, in chapter 6, he's in the Sermon on the Mount, and he gets into this, and before he tells them how to pray, two things he says don't do. Sometimes it's really instructive to get what not to do. Don't be like the hypocrites and pray on the street corners and pray for people to hear you. For, for you have received your reward in full, so don't do that. Right? And then number two, don't babble on and on and on and on and just pray mindless words. Don't do that. People do that. Don't do that. But he said, here's the pattern for prayer. So it's important for us to see this, okay? And I will touch just one aspect of Matthew when we get to it. Just one tiny bit. All right, you ready? Luke 11, 1 to 4. Hear now the word of God. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into Temptation. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Let's pray. Father, it's no accident we're here this morning, everyone by divine appointment, in their assigned seats. Speak now through this broken vessel and speak only your word from this pulpit. It is only the power of the word of God applied by the spirit of God that conforms us to the image and likeness of the Son of God. And that is what we desire most. Father, we always assume in your house and by way of the internet, to be sure, there are some who know not the Christ Make this a word of salvation. Give the gift of repentance and faith and raise them from death to life. And Father, there are always many in the midst of storm winds that are blowing. Make it a word of comfort and peace. And for those who are tired, weary, and heavy laden, a word of rest. All things to all people that some, in the sound of my voice, might be saved. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Come. Now, fount of every blessing, unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only 
And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Two parts, real simple. And then we go to the Lord's table under the thanksgiving prayer. Number one, the person of prayer. Let's take a brief look at this person of prayer. The number two, the pattern. That's what this whole thing is about, pattern. The pattern of the prayer. Not the specific words so much as the pattern that we have been given. And the framework is, has been out there for centuries. It's a really simple framework to understand this prayer. And for you to understand it as you come to the Lord in prayer. So the question really before the house, before we launch, is how important is prayer to, to you? Don't answer it out loud. Remember, you're being live streamed, so don't do that. How important is it? And really, the best way to decide how important anything is, anything, is how much time we spend involved in it, really. This is probably one, for me, I'll speak for me, it's one of the harder of the disciplines. Right? Bible study seems to be easier. It just does. Coming to church, giving time, talent, and treasure, service, fasting. This one's hard. Yet we have a church filled with prayer warriors all over the church that hold me up, that I'm encouraged greatly by. So I think the key is really us having an understanding of the power, the power that's contained in prayer. Why pray? Because God has not only, not only invited us and, 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 and wants us to, but we've been commanded to pray. So power in prayer, we believe that. Reminds me of the woman. There was this elderly woman who lived next to this atheist. And every single morning when she got up, she'd go to the porch, she'd say her prayers, and she would just shout out, praise God, praise God. And certainly through the window, the atheist would holler out, there ain't no God. Every day the woman came out. Finally, one day she came out, and she was running low on groceries, and she prayed her normal prayers. And Praise God, but I certainly could use some help with groceries. Three days in a row she prayed that. On the morning of the third day when she went out to pray, she noticed on the side of the porch there were these grocery bags. So she starts shouting praise to God. In that instant, the atheist jumps out of the bushes and says, Ah, got you. Here you are praising God for your groceries. You know where they came from? I got them. And I brought them here and put them on your porch. There ain't no God. She starts shouting louder, praise God, praise God. Not only does he bring me groceries, he has the devil pay for them. <laughs> Power in the word of God. Do you believe that? Let's take a look. Luke is called the gospel of prayer. Nine times Luke tells us about the prayers that Jesus offered. Let's take a look at a few of them, shall we? Number one, the person of prayer. Luke 11, 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. This just seems to define the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 3, 21. Just a few passages in Luke. I won't go outside of Luke. When the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized. And as he was praying, heaven was open. Know that when you pray, heaven is open. Then, of course, the Holy Spirit in a bodily form, whatever that means... As a dove descended upon him. But heaven opens when you go to the throne. Okay, that's the first one for Jesus. Later in Luke 5, 16, and we've been through all of these passages. But Jesus often, there's the key word, often withdrew. I think sometimes you got to get away to pray. There's just so many distractions everywhere we go. He often withdrew to lonely places to commune with his father. And he prayed. This next one is just... To me, it's almost mind-boggling. 
I, I, I pray for this kind of passion and power in prayer. Listen to these words. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. Can you imagine that? What did he do the next morning? This is good for anybody facing any difficult decisions or any life-changing decisions. He, he prayed all night, and then he chose the disciples, remember? He bathed everything in prayer. It didn't matter what he did. It was constant communion. You know the, you, you know the scripture, right? Pray without ceasing. What does that mean? To, to have a heart that's in an attitude and a posture of prayer. So it's powerful for us to understand. But he spent all night praying. It's almost hard to believe. So he's the person of prayer. Go back to now Luke 11, 1, back to the passage. Notice this. You sometimes have to read into the text a little bit, try to figure out who's, who's doing what. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, how do we know which disciple it can't be, theoretically? It can't be Peter. Why? Peter never would have let him finish his prayer. He'd have just jumped right in. So it's probably not Peter. It's maybe John. I don't know. We don't know. But one of the disciples, after they let him finish his prayer, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples, the Baptist, right, the last Old Testament prophet, he taught his disciples to pray. Notice the passage. Don't miss this. Not teach us how to pray. We don't need to be taught how to pray. Rather, teach us to pray. We all need to be taught what? To pray. That's the work. Not how. I remember, I'll never forget this, and I... I, I I may have mentioned this in the past when we talk about prayer. And it's comforting to people who say, well, you, you pray and you pray in front of people. But it wasn't always like that. We got saved in 95 and, 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 and I couldn't pray. And I remember my first pu- semi-public prayer was up in Tallahassee when I was training Danny Cannell. And we were doing the, the, the training. For, he was quarterback at Florida State. And we would go out to eat. We were up there on the campus training. And we said, okay, you ready to pray? And no, no, I'm not ready to pray. I'm not ready to pray. I'm not ready to pray. We'd been saved for a couple months, and I just I wasn't ready to pray. Finally, one lunch, he said, okay, you ready to pray? I remember sweating bullets, sitting at a table. I just, just, I just, Lord, thank you for this food. Amen. I just, it wasn't easy. Now it's easy to speak to him, but I don't speak to him as much as I should. Because I'm constantly distracted with stuff. And yet prayer is, is the key in everything that we do. So many who are uncomfortable and don't, it's okay. It takes a while to be comfortable. And then maybe you never pray in public. You don't need to. It's personal. Remember, he says, go into your closet and pray. This is between you and your father. Don't be like the hypocrite standing there and speaking. And, no. All it is is relationship, talking to your father in heaven. Okay? So they let him finish his prayer, and, and they said, teach us to pray. They wanted to be people of prayer. But there's a couple things we notice that aren't in the passage. And this is instructive, and, and we just leave it at this. There's no posture in prayer, and there's no place for prayer. What does that mean? Any posture is fine, and any place is fine. Prayer just simply needs to be a part of your life, a way of life. Driving in the car. At the ball game at the movie, wherever you are. No posture, no place. But there is a pattern, yes? Let's take a look at number two. Take a look at the pattern. Real simple pattern. 
Again, this is not mine. This has been out there for centuries. It's a wonderful pattern to understand this prayer that Jesus gives to us, okay? He said to them, when you, notice he says when, not if. Matthew 6, right, when you fast, when you give, and when you pray. It's all presupposed that you do this. You fast, you give, and you pray. Presupposed. Say this. Notice now there's no rote ritual to recite. There's no pattern. to. It's instructive. When you go to Matthew, right, you, you, you see it's longer, and we do it when we go to the Lord's table. You say there's something missing in Luke. There's nothing missing in Luke. The pattern. It's only the pattern that's being taught, not the actual words. The goal is not to have these words memorized and pray them over and 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 then babble on and on and on and on. That's not it. That's not what Jesus wanted. So he gives us a pattern, so they're different. Both prayers are different for that reason. It's a pattern. The pattern is clear. So the first part of the pattern is what? What does Jesus tell us in what? At the beginning, Father. The paternity of prayer. Father. Notice what Jesus eliminates instantly. The Greek philosophers believed in what? What do they believe Logos was? Some impersonal force. He eliminates that instantly. You're praying to what? A, a being, a real being. But notice who you're not praying to. You're not praying to Mary. Not praying to the angels. Not praying to the saints. Father. If you want to go to Matthew, our. Our Father, he says. Pray this. Our Father. An intimate, personal being who wants relationship with you. Not some impersonal force out there floating around for you to try to connect with. No, he eliminates that. Personal, intimate, father. In the Greek, pater, father, likely Jesus spoke Aramaic, so what word does he use? Abba. And it's without parallel in the whole of Jewish literature. Go to Romans 8.15. Watch this. Jesus is going to share his sonship with us. And notice the words that he uses. This is really intense. He has just transformed a whole culture of prayer for 1,500 plus years. Watch. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit brought about your adoption. You've been adopted now into the family of faith, into sonship. And we cry what? Abba. Daddy. Daddy. Father, that's intense. That's inten- this is intimacy. But let's pause, right? Because for some people, let's be clear, we talk about it on Father's Day. We talk about it on Mother's Day. We talk about it on holidays. For some, Father is not a term of endearment. I know that. So we're sensitive to that. You say, how do I pray to a Father in Heaven when I realize the Father that I have? I have to look past that. That's why it's important, dads. Remember. Remember. We use this phrase. Understand the phrase in its context. How, how attractive do you make God? God's attractive without your help. I understand that. But the question is, how attractive do you make God? Do you draw people into the relationship that you have with your God? Do you make that relationship something that people desire to want to partake of? Dads, that's your goal. There was a season, certainly in our family, where God was not attractive to my children. Brock will tell you. Jenna. I was just hard and angry. And it was a difficult season. And God was not attractive. And it took years to work through that. And to get to a place where we put the gospel on display and we make it real to our families and to the people around us. 
They're watching. They want to see what God is like. And the only way for them to understand is they're growing up in your homes as they're looking at you. And they're interpreting God through you and the way that you live, how you speak, how you deal with them. I'll never forget the day when we came to the conclusion that we were expecting from our bra what we ourselves couldn't give to our God. So it's important. We understand that there are difficulties, family relationships, but we look past the earthly father to the heavenly, Abba, Father. This is not a new term. Watch, use Calvin for this. Just, just, he gives a great quote. God is not only a father, but far, but by far the best and kindest of all fathers. There's the key. I tell him all the time, look past me. Things have gotten a little better. I'm a whole lot older, a little wiser. Things are better. But look past us. Look to God, who is your true father in heaven. It's not a new term. Father was used in the Old Testament, but it was used differently. Never used, generally wasn't used individually. It was always used for identifying the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Just look quickly, Isaiah 63, 16. But you are our father. It's a reference to the nation, the nation of Israel. And then again, Deuteronomy 32, 6. Is he not your father, your creator, who made you? The term was used, but never like this. Never, ever, 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 ever. Like they wouldn't say the name of God. They wouldn't write the name of God. He was too high and exalted and lifted up, and Jesus just absolutely dismantled all of those years and said he is father to me, and he's father to you. The tabernacle, remember the veil? It it separates, right? You have the, the outer court and the inner court, and you have the holy place and then the most holy only at Yom Kippur, one time a year, could the high priest go in and have access. God was basic. Yes, you could approach God, but you have to understand how you did it in the Old Testament. God was really basically unapproachable. And the veil made that clear. But on the cross, what happened to the veil? It was torn from top to bottom. That's a real historical event that took place. That, that veil was torn. Why? Christ, Christ now gives us access. Go to Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, the curtain that is his body, his body was broken for us. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. We have access now. You don't need a priest. You don't need a church. You you don't, You don't need anything. You have access to God your Father by way of God your Son in the power of God your Holy Spirit. What an incredible truth. But now we have to... If we stay here, this is the challenge. When we get to January and we talk about the evangelism, we talk about the culture, this is the challenge. We can't stay in a state of an imminent frame of reference. What does imminent mean? Imminence means close. Okay? So God is close. He's sitting with you in the pew. Jesus is right there with you, right? And that's true. He's there. It's imminence. But the challenge is in the culture today we have, in the cultural church, I don't mean the pagan, I mean in the church. In the church, basically, we only have an, for many, an imminent frame of reference. What does that mean? That, that, that God needs to meet my needs now. That's why pragmatic, practical sermons are so popular. How to have your best life now. Why? 
most people in the church believe it's God's job to give them their best life now, today, apart from suffering, apart from any trial or, 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 or difficulty. And that's that imminent frame of reference. And, and some of the top scholars have written about this, and we'll talk about it in January. So how do you dismantle the, the idols of the culture? How do you do that? You, you can't preach that way. You can't preach those, those, those practical sermons. You have to preach what? Not happiness, but holiness. You've got to show them that, yes, God is imminent, but he's also transcendent. So now in this prayer, we go from imminence to transcendence. We don't stay in the imminence too long. Why? God is holy. As R.C. Sproul would say, he's holy other. Anytime that you see somebody in the scriptures having an encounter with the living God, whew, in Isaiah, in the, court, in the occasion of his call, Isaiah 6, he looks into the court of heaven, and what does Isaiah do? He casts an oracle of woe upon himself. Woe is me, for I am undone. I have seen the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. What did Isaiah know in that instant? The separation between the sinful man and the holy God, and there was no way to, to bridge that gap. So he casts an oracle of woe upon himself. Peter in the boat, what does Peter do? Biggest catch of fish they ever got. What should Peter do? Peter's what? Fisherman. Jewish businessman. What should Peter have done with the biggest catch of fish? Should have pulled out a contract, said, Jesus, meet you here first Saturday of every month, split it 50-50. Peter doesn't do that. Falls on his face before Jesus and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Why? In that instant, he saw the difference between a sinful man and a holy God and a gap that could not be bridged. Imminence is real and it's true, but don't just stay there. Let me make something perfectly clear. God is not interested in your happiness. He didn't die on the cross to make you happy. He died on a cross to make you his, and by making you his, he is making you holy. Now, transcendence, watch the prayer, takes us now to transcendence. Hallowed be your name. Take a look. The priority of prayer Hallowed be your third commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So what is it? Hallowed, it's, it's, it's an old word. It, it, you're thinking of some kind of old musty building or some hallowed halls of some. No, it's just holy. Holy is your name. But his name is already holy. We don't need to help him, right? We don't need to. But what does it mean? It's your being. It's your person. It's your identity. It's your character. It's your reputation. Is to be honored. So we're to honor, we're to honor God by the way that we live, the things that we think and do and say. The names of God. Take a look just at a couple. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer. Now, how do we live this? And then we're going to go to the next petition. We can't, we can't spend a lot of time unpacking this. How do, how do you hallow, how do you make the Lord's name holy? It's already holy. How do you do it? What do you do? Well, let's take a look at what Luther says. When our life and our doctrine are truly Christian, then God's name is hallowed. But we, we make one change. Now, Luther comes from a different culture. I'm not here to correct Luther. However, he comes from a different cultural context. So today, I wouldn't say when our life and doctrine are truly Christian. Why? There's all sorts of Christians out there that are the furthest thing from Christianity. We would say the truly biblical Right? We don't talk about a Christian worldview anymore. We talk about a biblical worldview. Because why? Christians are constantly changing. The Bible never changes. 
That message is clear from beginning to end. So now, when our life and our doctrine are truly biblical, when we understand the frame of reference that we have been brought into in our salvation. So Luther's right. Life and doctrine, what we believe, what we teach, what we live by. People say doctrine divides. Excellent, it should. Jesus taught that. The gospel attracts and it repels. There's nothing you can do about that. God said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. But we're supposed to share that gospel in ways that are unoffensive. In ways that meet people in their place of deep need. Speaking their language. And then bringing them to an understanding of the deep truths of the gospel. But to hallow the Lord's name, life and doctrine needs to be biblical. Okay? The program of prayer. Now, this one is simple. Watch what we're going to do. And then we'll go to the next one. How often do we pray this? Your kingdom come. What was the problem in the Garden of Eden? What was the problem? Had God's kingdom come? Sure. In the beginning, God created everything, right? Adam and Eve in the image of God. Then in chapter 3, what happens? Adam and Eve decide to serve what kingdom? Their own. They listen to Satan. They decide to serve their own kingdom instead of God's. So they, having been created by God to live for God, the boundaries of their lives were to expand to the borders of God's kingdom. They shrink the size of their lives down to the size of their lives because they're serving themselves. They no longer wanted to serve God. So before you pray this, right, when, when we're going to pray it in a moment together, don't start with your kingdom come. Pray this. My kingdom, go. We've got to get rid of our kingdom. We spend so much time expanding the cause of our own personal kingdoms. We want to sit on the throne of our lives. We want to rule and reign. But when you pray your kingdom come, you say, no, I'm off the throne. I'm no longer in charge. I submit and surrender. I wave the white flag. I release the grip of all the stuff that I've been holding on to with white knuckles. I release it. It's yours. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom's better than mine. I keep messing it up. But we keep fighting for our own kingdom. So before you pray, thy kingdom come, pray this. My kingdom go. Now we go from the vertical to the horizontal. You know how the commandments, right? First four pretty much vertical the next six horizontal same thing here in the prayer we just did vertical father your kingdom come hallowed be thy name now we're going to go horizontal ready the provision of prayer give us each day our daily bread have you ever really prayed that don't say it out loud remember you're being live streamed don't do it Have you ever really prayed that? That's all you want? Right? You just want your daily provision? Okay, God says that's what we're to ask for. Nothing more. And be thankful when we get that. Where's the echo when you hear this? You go back to the Old Testament. Take a look at Exodus 16. This was specific and it was designed to teach us something. That's what Jesus is doing here. So we go back to the Old Testament. We go back to Moses. Remember the Lord said to Moses. Remember, remember, wait, (laughs) before before you do this. What what was the great challenge for for the children of Israel? They've been released from bondage. After 400 plus years, they're in bondage in Egypt. 400 plus years, they're released from bondage. And, and you'd think they'd been grateful, right? They saw all of the great miracles. What do they start complaining about just a few days into their journey? 
the menu. They, the menu. When's the last time you prayed about the, uh, prayed about the menu and you weren't happy with it? You, you do that? Don't do that. Don't be fussing about the menu. I used to fuss about the menu. Don't do that. They're fussing about the menu. So God says, okay, I'll fix the menu. I'll give you so much of this stuff, you choke on it. We want to go back to Egypt. Why? We had garlic and leeks and melons, but you were in bondage. It doesn't matter. We had garlic and leeks and onions. These people are messed up, but they're no different than us. The menu messes us up, the menu. So he says, I'm going to rain down manna from heaven. Ready? The people are to go out each day and to gather enough for that day. One day. One day. That's it. And God had a plan to fix their greed. What did he do? Moses said to the people, no one is to keep any until morning. However, some kept it. And what happened? It spoiled and it smelled. So really, when you look at this petition, the provision of prayer, God will supply our needs, not our greeds. Okay, moving on. The pardon of prayer. We could spend weeks. We've talked about this many times in different sermons when it comes into passages. This is deep. This is the only time I'm going to just go away. Look at the word first. Forgive us. The word forgive, Greek. Ephemai, send away to hurl. Micah 7, 9. Take a look at Micah 7, 9. God will hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. This is an intentional act that God is removing your sin as far as the east is from the west. Okay? You with me? But, but now, go back to the passage. Watch. This is the only one I'm going to change. Dan, go back. <clears throat> go to the passage. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. When we do it in Matthew, what do we say in Matthew? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our... You realize what you just asked for? So let me, let me frame it out. Do you want God to forgive you the way you forgive others? Oh, I better see every head going like this. Unless you're that sanctified, and if you are, see me after and tell me what you're doing. Because I don't ever want God to forgive me like I forgive all you. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. And yet we ask for that. What are we missing? We're missing our daily need of God's forgiveness and grace and mercy. We think we got it one time. We got saved and everything's fine. No, everything's not fine. God has to forgive us moment by moment, and yet we withhold forgiveness from others. We come to the church. We give our offerings, and we hold something against someone. We say, I'll never forgive. You, you want to know how to stay in prison? And I coach and counsel many who are prisoners of their past. You want to know how to stay in prison? Unforgiveness. I can't forgive them. I'm not minimizing bad stuff. You know I'm not. So let's, let's qualify two phrases. Forgiveness is not the same as trust. I've had to explain that to some people, even administrators at times, when, when we had to walk through some situations at school. Okay, everything's forgiven now. We're okay. We're all better. No, 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 no. We're not okay. No, we're not okay. I still don't trust. That trust needs to be earned. That could take weeks, months, years. It may never come back. But forgiveness is instant. You have no option. You don't get a vote. But I'm in counseling and coaching and people say, well, well I've been forgiven. Everything is fine. No, everything's not fine. Forgiveness and trust are not the same. They're not synonyms. You've damaged trust for years, and sometimes it takes years for that to come back, if ever. But forgiveness is not an option. And here's the key that we need to remember. Unforgiveness does more damage to the vessel in which it is stored than the object upon which it is poured. 
Yes, I'll do it one more time. And you can listen to it by way of the internet. Unforgiveness. And people, we struggle. Unforgiveness does more damage to the vessel in which it is stored than the object upon which it is. You're not making anybody pay you back. I will never forgive you. All you're doing is staying locked into the past. The past is gone. The future is promised to no one. All you have is now. Learn from the past. Don't live in the past. And I'm not minimizing bad pasts. I'm not. But you want someone to have that kind of power over you? For the rest of your life, I'll never forgive them. You want that? No, Jesus sets you free from that. If anybody, if anybody would have had a right to say, I'm not going to forgive these people, it would have been Jesus. And he's hanging on a cross, and what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And we withhold our forgiveness. Shame on us. Shame. And finally, the protection of prayer. This is, we just need to unpack very briefly. Why pray that God would not do something he cannot do? Why would that petition be in there? You have to ask that question, right? You know God can't lead us into temptation. Go to James 1. Go to James 1. God can't lead you into, now, some people try to say, well, okay, we, we, we just fix a word. That word's, uh, commentators change that word means trial. How do you know, how do you know that that absolutely can't mean trial or testing? How do you know? Because you, Jesus would never say, pray that he not lead you into trial. Why? Trials are what? Good. Yes? Uh, some of you are going, oh, I'm not sure, Pastor. Yes, they are. Yes. Consider it all joy. I'm not saying it's easy. Consider it all joy when you trace, tra- face trials of many kinds. We know it's not trial. It's temptation. Can God lead you into temptation? Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires. You want to know what that just said? <laughs> you don't have to say to the Lord, lead, lead me not into temptation. You want to know? You want to know why? You don't need any help. You're doing fine all by yourself. I don't need any help from the Lord. No, Lord, I got this one all by myself. I'm just walking right on the edge. I'm okay. No, we ask him to do what? Keep us away from this mess. Our hearts desire stuff we shouldn't desire, and we just keep us away from this. Don't Lead us where? Not out of temptation, but into truth. We are led into truth. That's what we want. And you know, I said this last night, and a couple people came up afterwards, so I've got to be brief, because you know, listen, don't, don't say it out loud. Don't say anything. You know, you know, in the past, you've done something you ought not to do. And something, something, maybe the phone rang, the email went off, something happened that distracted you for a moment, but you just pushed right past that and went right into that thing. And now you look back and go, I wonder if God rang that phone. I wonder if God. (laughs) 
you have no idea how many times I did not pick up that phone. I don't need anyone's help to be led into temptation. We need God's divine protection to stay out. We tell our college kids, don't see how close you could get to the fire without getting burned. Get away. Flee the devil. He's much stronger than we are. So we're just asking God, lead us into truth. Okay, how do we close this? Watch this. And then we go to the table. You know about 70 times in the Gospels, Jesus is Father. Praying Father, 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 Father. Did you know there was one time that he didn't pray Father, Father? Did you know that? Sure you did. Do you know why? You're the reason why. Watch. Matthew 27, 46. Not my Father, my Father. But my God, my God, why? Have you, the only time, the only time he could not pray, my Father. Because for the very first time in all eternity, our sin bearer was separated from his Father. And no more could he cry, Father. So he cried, my God, my God, because your name was written on his heart. That's the gospel. That's the truth. And now's a time of invitation with outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands. Jesus says, what? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Isn't it time to put the good works down? Isn't it time to put your doing down and come to Christ? There's only one way in. The Bible says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus meant what he said. There's one way to Father. That's through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We're going to pray right now, and if you've never prayed this prayer, pray it. Pray, it's not a prayer. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not a profession. It's a possession. But pray if you've never prayed to receive the Lord today. Today we fall at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and we pray tomorrow we may be his footstool. It may be too late. Don't wait. This is a moment of salvation out on the internet right now. This is a moment of salvation. Pray with me. Father, for anyone who has never surrendered control to Christ right now, may they just pray very simple words. Oh, God, I've heard the truth of the gospel. I am simply a sinner, and I cannot save myself. I turn my trust now over to the Lord Jesus Christ, who went to a cross and died my death, that I might have eternal life. I put my doing down. I trust not in anything that I have ever done or ever will do, but I trust by grace through faith in Christ alone. I transfer my trust from myself to my Savior. And salvation, I know, comes to me this day. And Father, for everyone else who's walked with you, many for decades, strengthen all of us in our faith, grow us up into Christ. And this we ask in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said. Okay, we're going to go to the Lord's table. We'll also do the Apostles' Creed as we normally do here. But let me just frame it and be real clear. If you're a professing believer, then you're welcome to the table. This is a meal for the family, the family of faith. If you're not, there's no shame in letting the plate pass. The plate with the wafers will come. Take one and wait to the end. I'll raise my hand and we'll say, take and eat. We'll eat together as a family. The second tray will come later and it'll be the grape juice. The juice will come and you'll take a cup and we'll wait. I'll raise my hand. 
take and drink, and we'll drink together. But there's no shame in letting it pass. But don't walk out of here without coming to me or coming to one of the elders, coming to one of the deacons. Don't walk out. Today is a day of salvation. Jesus is inviting you into a personal relationship with him. And we'll confess our sins. But know this. I've had people say to me so often, you know, Pastor, we really didn't have a lot of time in that confession to get all the sins. And I don't mean to be flippant by this, but I say to them, I don't have that kind of time for you. Do you have any idea how long we'd be here? The point is not to try to remember every single thing that you've ever done. The point is to come to the throne of grace with a heart that is filled with a godly sorrow that is broken because you broke the heart of God. It, it's Peter going out and weeping bitterly, but yet knowing that Christ died for that sin and nailed them to the cross. So that's what confession is. It's a godly sorrow. It should bother you when you do things you ought not to do. But it shouldn't leave you in the ashes of defeat. The cross rises you up out of those ashes and tells you that you're a child of the Most High God and you have been invited to a seat at His table. So now, rise, Christian. Rise and state what you believe in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated and join me in prayer. Father, we now come to you with hearts that are filled with a godly sorrow. We have professed our faith in you. And now we know that you are faithful to forgive. So here now, in the quiet of our hearts, our confession of sin. Father God, send your Holy Spirit so that this bread and cup may be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ spiritually. Gather your whole church into the glory of your kingdom. We pray this in the name of the one who taught us all to pray like this. Our Father, chart in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.